Now, Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. We are speaking with uh, the one and only Rick Browd or Browdy, uh, producer, author, and of course now uh, in charge of a dog rescue. And as we say here in Montreal, la bonjour, Rick. Comment allez-vous? How are you? Merci bien. Merci bien. Yes. Bien correct. See, see. Um, I, boy, there's so much that we wanted to, that I that I want to talk about because you you've produced so many of the albums in the uh, '80s that that meant a lot to the scene and meant a lot to the people from you know uh, Jet Boy, Kills for Thrills, uh, Poisons, Look What the Cat Dragged In, Faster Pussycats debut, etc., etc., etc. But let me get into the the dog rescue first. We got rings, uh, wings of rescue, which you can go to wingsofrescue.org. Um, talk to me if you want about that that lifestyle change where you go from you're you're in business, you're you're doing the stuff with Ted Nugent, you're doing the stuff with uh, all these other people, and then all of a sudden you move on to being an author and you go, hey, you know what? I'm going to take care of dogs. And I, and I have great respect for that because I have a rescue right here in my lap and I have another one right at arm's length on a pillow right there. Um, talk to me about wingsofrescue.org. Well, what Wings of Rescue is, we're not really confined only to dogs. We take all pets, you know, okay. we cats, rabbits, miniature horses, guinea pigs, gotcha. popular pigs. We, we've done quite a bit. We fly pets from disaster areas and overcrowded shelters where they might be euthanized to safe havens where there's empty kennel space and where no local shelter pets are displayed. Okay. By so you're farm. a no-kill shelter then? We're not a shelter. We you're not a shelter. We're, no, we don't, we don't shelter. We have no fosters or kennels of our own. So we're flying to okay. no-kill shelters. But, you know, no-kill has been perverted so much in today's vernacular because right. um, shelters claim that if they have a 90% live release rate, they're no-kill, which is to me like saying I'm a vegetarian and only eat meat on the weekends. You know, to right. explain to the 10% that you killed, that you're no-kill. But um, we also deliver humanitarian aid to disaster victims, both humanitarian and veterinary. For instance, a few weeks ago, I was in Haiti delivering... Uh, two tons of uh, medical hospital, mobile hospital for the earthquake victims of Haiti. Wow. St. Vincent with the volcano, every hurricane um, we've responded to. Basically, we've responded to earthquakes, uh, fires, tornadoes, volcanoes, floods, freeze-outs, basically every American disaster except for the Trump White House we've been to. <laughs> Yeah, because we're we're in Canada up in Vancouver right now. We're going through historic uh, flooding. So so is that something that your organization at some point might be called to or you might want to take action and say, hey, we, we got to go help our brothers? You already have. We're going, we're going to be in Vancouver on Tuesday flying to Calgary. Oh, wow. And um, so talk to me about what compelled you to do this. I mean, other, other than being a decent human being, because we should all be helping each other. Um, you know, you're, you're in the business, you got rock and roll, sex, drugs, rock and roll, Ted Nugent, you, you got the whole thing. How, why did you step away or how did you just say, you know what? Not for me anymore. I, I got a well, bigger calling. One day I woke up and I remember the day vividly my wife and i just were looking at all the records we've done and i sold 29 million albums yeah. and all and and we looked at it and said we've done nothing to make the world better in our lives and 
we wanted to do something that gave back. I mean, doing another Poison album does nothing to make the world better. Right. And um, so we had both had a tremendous affinity towards pets and we were awakening, my wife actually before I, then um, that pets were being euthanized in shelters for want of homes. And it made no sense to us that that was happening. So we both, this was in 2003, mm -hmm. and we both sort of devoted quite a bit of energy into doing that. And it became a full-time thing in 2008 for me. That's incredible. And in terms of future goals with this, do you want to get to a point where you're a shelter and you, you have, or do you just want to be more of I'm I want to be. I want to be the Maytag repairman. I don't. I want to work at all. I'd like to see the world you know, <laughs> get better and humane. But in this day and age, I mean, you're lucky because you live in Montreal, you know, and you've got very educated people by and large. I mean, maybe not so much. I used to live in Sherbrooke and not. Speak you lived in Sherbrooke. I did. Um, oh, well, well, see, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm not exactly in Montreal. I'm on the outskirts. I'm about 40 kilometers out, closer to the Ontario border. But if you say where I'm from, people go, I've never heard of it. But, I probably have. Yeah, you <laughs> probably have. Hockey all over that area. So, uh, but, uh, um, but, you know, it's, it's just, you know, you live in a more humane country than the United States, uh, unfortunately. Uh, the United States is basically bisected north and south and the further south you go the less humane it becomes and you know texas louisiana mississippi uh arkansas those states in particular are always hard hit by shelter overcrowding and people not vaccinating or spay neutering their pets yeah, it's, uh, I mean, you know, the in the warm climates, it's it's hard because there's just so many animals and so much going on. Um, if I can, let, let me just quickly ask you about, about some of the albums you worked on, because uh, I recently uh, spoke to Ted Nugent and, and Tom Warman, but you worked on Intensities in Ten Cities, a show in Montreal that I actually went to as a kid. Wow. Yeah, back in, I guess it was 80. I remember 80. that day vividly. Yeah, it was back in 81, I guess it was, right? It was in December of 81. Yep, I was there. Listen, I'll never forget the bow and arrow and the swing in the crowd. And I was like, what the hell is this? Because, you know, I, I at that point I had seen Kiss and Cheap Trick. So seeing, seeing Ted was a much a different experience. Um, how did Talk to me about recording that and being involved in that because it is 10 different cities. So how do you sort of choose which song came from where and how did you just record the whole show or yeah we recorded i think we recorded 10 shows basically and all and took the the best and then overdubbed on top of it, it just like double live gonzo which i was also involved in. i was involved in pretty much all those albums but you know not getting credit on them but and and you know you're doing a lot of overdub basically the only thing that's live half the time is the drums i mean it's it's just it's just marketing yeah it, it really is i i remember uh interviewing a guitarist for a band back uh in the early 80s or early 19 1990s and he said we're about to go record our new live album and i went great what what town he goes oh no we're going to a studio in hollywood and i went 
What? What? Yeah, I think, I mean, the crowd noise is probably from the concert of Bangladesh. You know, it's, it's just like, there's so many things going on in live albums. Like, I met my wife during the recording of uh, Double Live Gonzo, and I just remember she was a Columbia Law student, and we've been married now for 43 years, but I brought her in to see, and she goes, why are you in the studio if you're doing a live album? What is everybody doing here? <laughs> oh, well, Rod exposed. <laughs> It's uh, and I'll finish on 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 this with the with the live stuff. I was uh, Aldo Nova lives about ten minutes from me, so I was at Aldo's house in uh, August last summer, and we go into one of the studio rooms because this entire house is studios. The only thing that's not a studio is the bedroom, the kitchen, and the bathroom. Everything else, he's turned into different studio rooms. So we're in one, we're in one room, and he goes, "Oh, this is the room in which we um, which uh, Obi O'Brien and Richie Sambora recorded their parts for the." Uh, the Bon Jovi live album. And I went, what? <laughs> he goes, yeah, all the guitars were done right here in my living room. And it's like, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a magic. I mean, especially now, I mean, you don't need a recording studio at all. Back in the day when I was recording, you actually had to pay for a studio that would run anywhere up to like 200 US dollars an hour. You know, wow. now kids with their beginning computer have more at their fingertips than I ever had paying $200 an hour. Yeah, I know. I know. And then, and, and, you know, you just look at the, uh, the new iPhone that's coming out. It has a, 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 a one a terabyte of, of memory. And I'm like, wow, you can put a terabyte in your pocket. Just imagine. Yeah. Just imagine, you know, when, where, where we... noon, you know, your Commodore computer was more and more <laughs> powerful than what they use. So it's pretty impressive. Um, okay. Ted Nugent and I get along. We we I, I'm not. I'll stop at saying we're friends, but we get along politically. We might be different. What was it like back then working with with Ted? Because personally, he's been him. yeah. We disliked each other immensely the entire you, time. Everybody really? hated him. Yeah. And so so he uh, he he gave everything to over to Lou Futterman and said, Lou, just I can't take 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 this guy. <laughs> well, Lou was just a real estate developer basically at that time. Right. And uh, he was lost interest. I was his assistant and I ended up doing, anytime you saw Lou's name really was pretty much me doing things. Um, Ted, Ted had his own right wing gun toting philosophy. Right. And I'm basically the opposite. So, you know, uh, he and I would never, we, we would never match. I mean, we, we disliked each other immensely. I was doing it just to do albums because I wanted to do albums, but it was certainly not for either the music or for the person. For the person. So how did you get into producing initially? I mean, you 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 had your, your Rick Browdy production thing. You had started working on a Wasp album and then they got you got called away. Uh, well, they were, I mean, Ted, Ted came first. I was going right. to university at Cornell. Right. And Lou Futterman was going up there escaping his creditors. And I was seeing his producers, wow, you know, rock and roll producer moved to Ithaca, New York. Why is that? You know, not realizing that he was just down on his luck. Right. He had Nugent's contract. And I had had, I had done some things musically. I had gotten a record deal. Um, but then the, it was a three-piece band that I had called the Amateur Gynecologists. And Great um, name. We had a we had a sign. We got a ten thousand dollars signing bonus, and we were going to have a party that night. 
and I was in charge of getting, you know, supplies and things like that. And I came back to the house and found that the other two members had died because they had bought heroin and taken hot shots. And so it was kind of the end of, my, of that, that record deal. Um, and it was pretty, you know, daunting and things like that. And I was always the straightest person you, and most naive person you ever met. Right. Didn't do drugs, never did throughout my, you know, throughout my history. I never did drugs. I never drank. You know, I was kind of like a Christian scientist almost without the religion. Well, well I'll have to say you and I are, are very similar in a lot of aspects. I don't drink. Um, <clears throat> I've never done a drug, even when I was 13. I just, I never, it was not, it was not my gig. You know, just like skiing is not my gig. Yeah. And, and we have this great love for animals. I mean, yeah. it's so, funny when I, when I tell people I, I don't drink, they go, oh, how long have you been sober? And it's like, right. I'm not sober. I just, I rather play tennis when I was 15. Like, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I want to be a nice hockey player. Exactly. Um, <laughs> want to play for the Habs. Man, yeah. I grew up, I grew up next to Ken Dryden. I want to, I want to, I want it to be him. I, yeah, I was like, you know, I was a huge Montreal Canadian fan myself. Yeah. yeah but, uh, um, but anyway, and later to the St. Louis Blues. Uh, but right. um, Brett anyway, Hall. Yeah, no, but I was there in 67, 68, their first season, and the caption, you know, when they lost the Montreal, and yeah. where the Thrills was watching the Stanley Cup, you know, the two years against Montreal. But anyway, um, so my, my thing was, you know, I wanted to get into the studio, I wanted to record my own stuff. And I became very close friends with Cliff Davies. He was the drummer and he was a really talent behind Ted Nugent. As soon as Cliff was gone, Nugent's career went down the crapper. And Cliff basically arranged, uh, he, he wasn't supposed to be the drummer. He had been a drummer in a band called If, and I had been working with him. And Cliff and I struck up a partnership, which later we went into doing some albums uh, uh, on our own. We formed a production company called Piranha Brothers. And um, we, really really had a, a good thing cliff was my mentor and so cliff got me into nugent got me doing all those things that i wasn't getting credited for if you look at if you look at the single from double live gonzo i'm produced i'm giving the full producer credit they used to like go well you got a platinum album and i was getting paid 225 bucks a week that's all i was getting i was just like um up until screen dream which is the first one where i got full producer credit i think and um or, or, or stated it was screen they all blend together to me That's but, okay, yeah. so anyway then you know i found myself i became very good friends with the scorpions um they brought me over to do an album in germany that led to one thing that led to Poison. It's just all sort of a chain of events type of thing. Being yeah, right. it really is. So, so let me ask you this, because on your uh, official website, the uh, rickbrowdy.com, it says after leading after leaving uh, Nugent, uh, Browdy was producing the debut Wasp album when the Scorpions brought him to Germany. Yada, yada, yada. He moved to the States and despite having a reputation for being a garbage producer, had a string of hits. Now, now, why would you put that on your official uh, website? Well, that's what I was. I mean, you know, what, what, what does that mean? Because it's it's it's, well, it's, it's it funny. Was, I always I always got that you know people would like 
the Poison album, we had a $23,000 budget to include everything, the mastering, the advances, the travel, the recordings, and things like that. And people would always like criticize me, like, you know, here's a band that couldn't play their instruments for shit mm-hmm. and couldn't sing. And um, yet the album sold 7 million copies. Yeah. But it doesn't sound as good as a Def Leppard album. Well, why? Because we didn't have the budget and it sounded like garbage. And then Faster Pussycat, you know, because of Poison, I was, what happened with Faster Pussycat is the A&R guy um, wanted to sign into a development deal, but he was going to give them 25000 And I was like, $25,000, I'll give you a bloody album. And he's like, you can't do that. And I was going, I not only can, but I've done it. So he gave me 50000 under the provision. What I didn't spend, I got to keep. And so I got to keep $15,000. And that album sold over, I've been paid for over a million copies, even though it never was even certified gold because the label hated the band. Um, right. But, um, so I was doing all these low budget albums and I was getting, and, and because you get stereotyped into whatever you have success with. And I had success success with Nugent, who was, you know, right. garbage music, basically. Poison, Faster Pussycat, I became known as a garbage producer. Then when I did Joan Jett, I did my first album with a budget, and that album went, I think, about two or three million copies sold. And then I started doing things that I really wanted to do, and they didn't sell crap. So, you know, <laughs> um, you know this is the tragedy of my life. The, the, the best albums I did didn't sell, and the, the albums that I really had no respect for did pretty well. All right, so so I, I do want to take a couple of minutes just real quick on the Poison one because I, I saw the video for whatever it was, Talk Dirty to Me, and I went down to the record store and it was on sale on cassette for $5.99. I bought it, and I, end up, I, I ended up loving it. Um, and there is a, the story that, you know, it was recorded in whatever, two weeks. And mm-hmm. t- talk to me a little bit about that, because there are so many rumors on there that it wasn't really the guys that played on it, that you actually played drums on it, that Ricky would come in and you would just go, yeah, that sounds good, and then send them off, and then you would go replace There's all the drums. Let's just say there was a lot of editing done on the album. There was a lot of uh, what? Editing. You know, the tape looked like Zebra with all the splice marks. But um, we were able to do the album because of Stevie Nicks, to tell you the truth. She was so coked out. She had booked this studio called Music Grinder on Melrose Avenue in Los Angeles. And she was so coked out that she never showed up at the studio. So we made a deal, backroom deal with the um, the tape op, I think it was, at the the, uh, studio. And we got the studio for 500 bucks cash a day. And if, and if the fat bitch showed up, we'd have to be out. Well, she never showed up. We got her two weeks in and did the album. So why do you think then that it spoke to so many people? Because I got it up here in Montreal and it was a triumph of image over substance, really. Uh, you know, the songs were catchy. I mean, a lot yeah. of them were plagiarized. There were three lawsuits com- around that album for songs that were plagiarized really? from other bands. Um, but um, it was, you know, the cool thing was the way, the way 
I envisioned making records in those days was nobody listened. I mean, Mutt Lang's the best producer probably of all time, but nobody really listens to production. A&R people do, people with their suffering from rectal cranial inversion do. But, you know, it's just... um, I I might be one of those because I love great production. I love when it sounds sugary sweet. Give Give me Mutt Lang, give me Bob Ezrin, give me Bob Rock. I'll take the Black Album over anything Metallica has ever done, ever, period. You know, I mean, to me, all I listen to is old R&B and and gospel music from the uh, Black gospel music from the early 60s. So um, not and I'm not religious, but I just love the what I listened when I listen to a record. I'm listening for the energy. Yes. And I'm not listening for did the band speed up? Did the band slow down? You know, all those things that Pro Tools have sapped out of me, modern music, I'm not listening to. I'm listening to, did it sound like the band was having fun and exciting? That's what translates over to audiences. It's got to capture vibe. I mean, if Otis Redding came into, you know, brought a demo of Can't Turn Me Loose or something like that to an A&R guy today, they'd go, you sang Shark. You, you know, I and the band sped up. We need to fix this. And you're like going, what the, you know, what, what the, you know, and that's what's missing from modern music. It all sounds machine produced and things mm-hmm. like that. But I don't want to sound like my parents, you know, turn that shit lower because, you know, when I was playing the kinks or uh, as a kid, um, it's just today's music lacks soul because it's just overly processed. And what was cool about Poison, other than the fact that it opened up the music business where talent had previously been a barrier to entry, was that um, they were having fun. It sounded like in the studio. And that's what people were listening to. And then they did those great videos. And we were very fortunate in the Capitol Records who took over the label that Poison were recorded for um, fired its entire A&R staff and had no albums in the pipeline except for Poison and Crowded House, which were the only two albums they had to work for eight months. So both those albums went really well because the promotion staff had nothing else to do. So all the $100 handshakes to get wow. uh, DJs to play it across the country went to Poison and Crowded House. So boom, we were lucky. Right place, right time. You were, and and you know, Alan Niven, uh, who used to work with uh, Guns N' Roses and Great White, uh, mm-hmm. sometimes co-hosts the the show with me, and he always tells me there's a perfection in the imperfection, and I think Alan's that's, a smart guy. Alan's yeah. a very smart guy, and and the and vibe is important. Yeah, I mean, we were sort of in the same circle though. We never, I, we only met a couple times. Michael Wagner's the. Um, the one who links us together, but um, yeah. oh, I should have uh, had Alan on here today. I should have, I should, yeah. I should have told him. Oh well, next time. Well, you know, it, it's quite funny because the girl who financed Guns and Roses lives at my house right now. Um, oh, you got Vicky there? No, it's a woman named Laura Reinjohn, who's the first person thanked on the Guns and Roses album. Ah. He's working as an S and M hooker, and they were all living at her house, and uh, oh. um, is the one who kind of finance the whole thing um good marketing good good pr let's put it that way good good on her yeah Um, but um 
anyway, um, Poison, you know, Faster Pussycat, all the, all those bands, they were they were having fun of what they did. Yeah. And nobody was, you know, the label would come in during Faster Pussycat's album and wanted to drop them, but they'd already given me the 50 grand, so they had to put it, put it out anyway. They, and after the album became a hit, they tried to... They tried to kill the album. In fact, they called the A&R guy, said, have you dropped them yet? And he was like going, no, look, it broke in the charts at 79. And he's like going, fire them, get drop them. And then the, the label president at the time, and then they went up another 10 points the next week. And he's like, did you drop them? And he, the guy thought he was safe because the album went up and he got fired for it. You know, it's it's... it's it's amazing what happens when corporate America, the disconnect between corporate America and enthusiasm. Yeah. You know, and, you know, real enthusiasm is hard to manufacture. And you can't take, and you can't teach cheekbones. And Poison had cheekbones. They were great, you know, for that. You know, well, listen, they, they were the perfect band for the for scene moment. at that moment absolutely yeah. they had the look they had the enthusiasm they had the willing fan i mean you know that you know you trying to intellectualize why something's a hit is always a failure yeah. in my part but they were in the right place at the right time good on them i can't change it nope don't want to change it nope move on <laughs> move on um uh, and uh, the 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 mystery will remain on on whether or not you played drums on the album at all. Um, talk to me about the scene though, because you're involved with Victory, Kills for Thrills, Shooting Gallery, um, Jet Boy, Rhino Bucket, all these bands that eventually end up being sort of the C list or D list bands. And I don't mean that disrespectfully. I mean they're not playing arenas. They don't play Madison Square Garden. So it, mm -hmm. you know it, it is what it is. Um, but it was an, an important underground scene, a, a, a sort of an underbubbling of, of what was going on in the major arenas. Well, I mean, Victory was a German band. True. And, and they actually went on to become a platinum band in Europe. Really? Uh, okay. After, you know, after I left, but they, they did, did fairly well. Um, you know, Jet Boy were a band that just were cursed by the fates. They should have been huge. Um, one of the nicest people in rock and roll ever, Billy Rowe. Um, just, I mean, they they were great. They had Sammy Yaffa, who was a wonderful bass player and still is to this day. And they, you know, they just got, they were on the wrong record label that dropped them, the same label that Faster Pussycat were on, actually. Right. And were dropped with the album that was pretty decent in the can that they'd done with Tom Allen uh, down in Florida. They asked me to do one song. And I remember it was on my birthday that we did it at the record plant. It was a lot of fun. And that was it, you know. And yeah, the album was released and did a lead balloon, but they were on MCA which was then stood for Music Cemetery of America. So there wasn't much chance of success there. You know, it's all about timing, all about marketing. And yeah. I mean- well, Actually, just uh, give me a second here. Talk to me about MCA because MCA has the reputation of, of the 80s bands and early 90s bands as being the place where your career went to die. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I mean- it was, a, it was just a poorly run 
label from top to bar bottom, except for the distribution arm was very good. But, you know, their A&R staff, nobody would sign with, with MCA unless right. they had to. They had no other choice. Right. And it was funny because Kill for Thrills actually was an exception for that. They had other places to go, but they took the money. And therefore, but they titled their te- their album "Commercial Suicide," so I think they knew <laughs> they should have. Right. Um, but uh, you know, it's you know, labels are only as good as the people that work with them, right? And enthusiasm with MCA, you never really. I mean, I was around a lot of labels because I produced for a bunch of labels. Right. You never got the idea that after the nine to five or in music business, probably noon to noon to seven, probably day that they work, they were going out to the clubs and hanging out and, you know, just living the life of their bands and, you know, and, and, and really supporting things. You never got that impression from MCA. Whereas, you know, the people in the field at the, you know, uh, Geffen, for example, Geffen, yeah, Geffen had way more creative people in their their label, and that's probably why they were a successful label for the late '80s and 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 early '90s. Where Polygram was actually very Merc- the Mercury division of Polygram was really really good at that. The people hung out. The people were on the streets. They were in touch with what was going on. I didn't get that vibe at MCA and the only A&R guy there that was really like sharp immediately left and went to Interscope. So, you know, um, Michael Goldstone. Is, but, is it fair to say that MCA was sort of a pop rap or whatever, urban or whatever kind of label? And they sort of saw the rise of Quiet Riot and Bon Jovi and said, OK, we need a rock division and then just. Very few labels lead, they all follow. Right. You know, so, you know, it's just like movie, the movie business, you know, oh, that that was a hit. Like, get me eight more just like it. And that was MCA's philosophy. So they'd sign Pretty Boy Floyd and garbage bands like that. And, um, you know, because they saw, you know, a band that kind of wore poison's clothes. So, you know, it must be good. Though I gotta say, Leather Boy, uh, Electric uh, Leather Boys, or whatever you call it, that first album is is endearing. It's 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 good. It's cute. I mean, I like it. Oh, cool! You know, <laughs> I mean, how many did it sell? Uh, I, I have no idea, but I, I mean, I, I I thought it was I thought it was decent. Um, They're still out there trotting it. I mean, you know, I I think it sold enough copies that like Brett Michaels would probably have to count his unzip his pants to count how high it sold. But, um, uh, you know, 11, maybe. 11, 12. Um, let, me, uh, let me start wrapping up here because we, we said we'd do half an hour and we're already there, believe it or not. Uh, Faster Pussycat. Uh, I saw them open up on the White Snake tour in Montreal. And it was unfortunately one of the worst performances I'd seen. And then I spoke to the boys. I spoke to Brent Muscat like 10 years later. And I said, and he goes, oh, I remember that. I was having a tooth pull and there was this and the and, and 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 there was too much coke and there was too much this um is that a band that should have done better because they they sort of had the musical chops i mean 
bathroom wall and stuff was definitely a good enough song. Um, what went wrong in, in the history of Faster Pussycat? Was it the band got in their own way or was it just no, no. too late in the game? I, you know, very few times do I think that a band would have done better had they stayed with me. Right. And they're the one that would. But, and it was funny because I was with Tammy yesterday, actually. Um, Faster Pussy got, got victimized by the label hated them as people. The, 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 label, the label had a guy named Bob Krasnow had it in for them. Did not like them because they weren't arty and this, that. They were just street kids. Yeah. They got their album really easy. Really, they'd only done six gigs when I signed them. And, um, you know, but they had an enduring quality to them. They did, when I did them, I was a bit of a control freak on that first album because I didn't allow them because I knew more than them, you know, at that time. So I thought, and, you know, we stayed at three and a half minute songs, pie and large. Then they started doing albums where they were a little bit more in charge and they're, they're, they're arranging the arrangements got in the way. They, they were doing six and seven minutes songs. And that's not them. You got to be short, quick, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, you're done. Oh, listen, and, I, I fully agree with you. I don't and, like self-indulgent songs. And they got, they, they got the, the best song that Faster Pussycat ever did was unreleased. And it's called Lie Your Way to Heaven. And it, it would have been a huge hit. Probably would be today if they ever released it. And I couldn't, I couldn't believe when I heard, you know, they, they showed it to me for their second album. I was like, this is awesome. And then I listened to their second album, which did well. I mean, You're So Vain for some reason was a hit, and I think it's atrocious. But um, I think if they had put Fly Your Way to Heaven on it, it would have been platinum single. You know? Really? Oh, I gotta, I gotta hear that song now. I'm gonna have to re reach out to Tammy somehow. Cause I mean, you know, you look at "Don't Change That Song" bathroom. While I'm looking at the thing here. A bottle in front of me. That one sucked. <laughs> the last one. Yeah. You know, there's definitely a side one and a side two to that album. You know, bottle in front of me was front of me should have gone under the label. Let me ask you that because um, uh, I'm friends with Tom Worman, and he said that his uh, trick for the bad song was he would put it before last on side B, you don't want to put it last because you don't want the fans to leave and go, man, that sucked, and then have that in their head. So he always snuck the worst song, according to him, before last. So track nine, for example. Yeah. D did you have a little trick like that where you just went, oh, God, bottle in front of me. Yeah, I, 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 I'm not as smart as Tom. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, Tom, Tom, Tom's, Tom's deviously smart. I, I have nothing but respect for Tom. But... Uh, Tom Tom would be the one who probably sat there, figured it out, and, and did something like that. I just like, oh, I like this song better, and I like that song next, that song. And that's the way I would sequence an album. Oh, that's great. Um, do you still have any desires? If, you know, if, if Faster Pussycat, you know, did a reunion with Brent Muscat and, and everybody and said, hey, Rick, let's, let's go back to 1987 and do a reunion album, would you be up for it, or are you like, no? I'm on I'm to dogs. Pretty, and... I'm pretty much, you know, I I do mess around in Italy. I still do some stuff with, with some friends over there. And I did a really cool album a few years ago. Um, 
with a band called Armed Venus. It's probably the best album I ever did, actually. Okay. Where I they let me write all the stuff, and you know, there's a song called "My Life Sucks, But My Girlfriend Doesn't," and um, you know, "Jihad to See Her," and you know, uh, "Church of the Former Virgins." Um, really good album, amazing album. If you ever get your hands on it, you should. It's probably my best work. I'll check it out. It's, it's between that, The Dogs to More, and Flies on Fire were the best albums that I did. But, um, you know, I would do something if I had, only if I had control of it at this point in my life. Right. Um, there's no desire to go into the studio, though. I mean, I, I, far, I far more enjoy writing, um, yeah. not having to deal with, I mean, the great thing about doing the dog rescue and things like that is I tend to work with far better behaved and more housebroken <laughs> creatures yeah. creatures than I did with rock and roll. So not having to deal with egos is a wonderful thing. That, that sounds great. And, and uh, I'll last two quick things here. Uh, I see on the back there you've got a Hysteria Def Leppard, I guess, Platinum Award or something. What's the connection uh, and how did you get that? Well, so actually, don't, my, don't, yeah, don't say eBay. <laughs> yeah, that one's my wife's actually. Though Def Leppard were our opening act. Uh, my last tour with Ted Nugent was Scorpions and Def Leppard on their very first tour. Oh, wow. Um, uh, very first tour of uh, America. That, that one belongs to my wife, who, who is their attorney at Hologram. Ah, okay. Well, look at that. And uh, of course, uh, your book, While I'm Dead, Feed the Dog, uh, had great success. Uh, talk, talk to me just real real quick about sort of the creative process. I mean, getting a band in like Faster or Poison creatively, you're, you're doing different stuff. Uh, what was the process like to write a book and, and how did that differ from sort of music creativity? While I'm Dead was actually what happened was my dog my wife revolves around my dogs right. and my dog got hit by a car and broke his leg and had to be on the ground, not moving for four weeks. And I borrowed in those days, it was my, you know, laptop computers were really expensive. Yeah. And I, I borrowed my wife's thing to just sit on the floor with my dog, canceled all my recordings for three months and just said, I'm going to hang out with my dog. I'd be on the ground, so I'd be bored. The dog was sort of sedated to keep him quiet. And so I just sat there and I just started writing. And my wife would come home and say, what did you do all day? And I'd show her this. And she's like very encouraged. She'd go, I think I wrote the first 25 pages in the first couple of days. And she's like, you got to write this. And so I finished it in a couple of months. And um, then the, the weird thing was, I wrote a book. Now, what the fuck do I do with it? Because I've never, ever written a book. And it's not like a demo where you can give it to somebody and they can, you know, the next time they see you, they'll put it in their car and play it on their way over so they can say, oh, yeah, I heard that. You know, three minutes of their lives wasted while they were on the phone. Right. And so with the book, I printed up 20 copies and people would come over the house and say, what have you been doing to it? And I'd hand them that book and they'd go, Oh, you know, like sort of, yeah, I'm going to read it. And they, you know, <laughs> saunter off never intending, but then they were going to see me again. So they go, Ooh, I'm going to pick this up and just read a couple just so I can just act like. Sounds smart. That's right. Sounds smart with it. And they liked it. And what happened was one of the guys who was uh, 
later president of Motown Records, and a wonderful person by the name of Steve McKeever, uh, read it and loved it. And he got a couple of other people and read it and loved it. And they all like, we got to make a movie. Got to do this, got to do that. And so Paul Graham Records, the head of one of their divisions, was going to put it out. And they made me record a record to put it out because they're going, you're known for music. So do a record, do a soundtrack to your own book. And so I did that. And then the division got folded <laughs> before the book came out. So, but they'd still like the guy who was in charge of it still like it. So he had a friend of his put it out and he went bankrupt the day the book came out. But it got into one bookstore in Los Angeles and I got a phone call. It got in and because it had it, um, the title was While I'm Dead, Feed the Dog, which was a suicide note my mother left. Right. Um, and um, this guy from Germany picks it up, loves it, tracks me down through the phone book because I've always had a listed phone number. And he goes, are you the guy who wrote this? And, I, and he goes, well, I'm from Aufbau Verlag and I'm the president of it and I want to release it. I thought it was my friends playing from Berlin playing a trick on me. <laughs> Didn't believe him, but gave him the rights. Then it got a deal at HarperCollins in and, and England. Then I started getting chased by all these movie people. And then made the mistake of after five years of being chased by everybody taking a deal with an, with somebody who then gang raped it into a movie and uh, um, then I had to make fun of the movie and start a blog about it but it's it's I'm proud of the book and there's a sequel that'll come out relatively soon once I get over just being so mortally offended with my um, with what got done to the movie I just feel like the book the the continuation of the book is much blacker and much funnier yeah. but i just don't want it to, because they own the movie rights to it i'm just trying to figure out a way to not have the movie rights attached to it so. and and for for rock fans it says here on your website it says uh while i'm dead feed the dog comes with a full-length cd soundtrack featuring members of dog demore so hey bonus points right there yeah that's, that's no, great. They're, they're they're my family dogs more basically um, they're my closest friends on the planet. Here, um, here we go. And a group called Flies on Fire are really involved. Hey, this, cool. this is the latest rescue, by the way. Whoops. Let's see. Well, I have go. I have seven here, seven go. dogs and seven cats, and that's really cute. That's the that's the latest one, and he just stays in this lap all day long. It's been making interview doing uh, difficult, but uh, you know, I kind of I I have to isolate myself because I I just have a herd, and you know. Yep. Tomorrow I'm flying out to go get a hundred dogs, and you know we've flown sixty thousand pets since Wounds of Rescue started, or we will have with so, tomorrow's flights. So, so you, you fly them in from? Are, are these the ones that come from dangerous places like Iraq, Iran? Uh, We're flying some dogs from China this week, but normally we don't do. We do all across North America, but uh, these, these dogs are going to be coming from Texas. And going up to uh, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, and Seattle. But I've been in your neck of the woods. I, mean, I just flew from the Bahamas to Halifax last week. And, wow. Um, from... Well, if you ever have uh, dogs and you're in the Montreal area that need a home, I'm always willing. And uh, hey, we got we got some. You know, uh, we we've we've flown into Quebec before, so you know, it's not the it would not be the first time. Uh, I will re uh, remind folks that wings 
ofrescue.org, wingsofrescue.org. Check it out. Make a donation if you can. There is a donate button there, always important. And uh, on that, as we say in Montreal, merci, an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Let me uh, let me stop that.